0: Who, whose idea was this atomic vodka project then was this something that your your research group specifically decided to work on or were you approached by
1: yeah no, no that was it by a vodka company <laughs> okay
0: so they that's so interesting no. that they chose to work with you on that though. no no no, no I'm,
1: jo- I'm joking no it was it was our idea it was our oh.
0: idea yeah i <laughs> edit that out to make me sound less gullible yeah, yeah. <laughs> no yeah that's <sir.
1: laughs> it
0: Welcome back to episode three of the lockdown series of the Pint of Science podcast. Yes, and although, indeed. Welcome back. As we reach day 101 of lockdown, I'm not entirely sure we'll manage to get a full 10 episode <laughs> run out before lockdown is lifted. But nonetheless, it's been a good one. We've been talking to scientists from across the board on the way their research has been affected by, directly or indirectly, the bizarre pause in human activity we've all been party to. This period of human inactivity has a a cheeky scientific name. What's that now, Jim?
2: Yes, it is indeed the anthropos. Uh, We anthros have paused, and nature, if not, it's not quite reclaiming the world, but it's definitely rearing its head a little bit more than it did uh, beforehand.
0: That is right. Now, obviously, the fruits of all these kind of research opportunities that have arisen during lockdown are going to emerge in the future. But for this week's episode, we invited in an expert who's already spent decades researching what happens to an environment when human activity is suddenly removed from the picture. We caught up with Professor Jim Smith, Professor of Environmental Science at the University of Portsmouth. Jim's research kind of focuses on modelling pollution. Of both terrestrial and aquatic ecosystems and he spent uh, the last 30 years looking at the consequences of radioactive pollutants in the environment using a very specific example which there was a television show made about recently which was of course
2: Jim That was uh, Chernobyl, yes. The the infamous uh, nuclear accident that occurred in, uh, I think, April 1986, which led to the evacuation of the whole human population from uh, the area around the Chernobyl power plant.
0: That's right. Now, I'm not going to bang on too much about all the... Fascinating things you can hear Jim talk about in the next uh, episode. However, it is worth pointing out that he's also been involved in a lot of really fascinating science communication projects, one of which we focus on today, the Atomic Vodka Project. So Jim can claim to have helped manufacture the world's very first vodka product, which uses ingredients produced from within the Chernobyl exclusion zone, uh, which is a pretty cool project to have your name to. And as you'll hear, uh, I think the concept behind it is also just... Just a really nice one.
2: Yeah, it's very cool. And as we are pint of science, it seems only fitting that we, that we talked about it.
0: Absolutely. I wish we could have been there in person with him to yeah, have a few shots. Have
2: if... a
1: little, have a little drink, yeah.
0: Anyway, we'll catch up with you again at the end of the episode. Enjoy. Speak to you
1: soon. Enjoy. Many, many people might have seen the amazing TV series last year. I've been studying Chernobyl since 1990 when I was studying, as a PhD student, radioactivity in the Lake District in the UK. So we got some small amount of fallout in the UK from Chernobyl. But since 1994, I've been working in the exclusion zone around the plant itself. So that's the 30 kilometre radius abandoned area. And that's a huge area. By UK standards, it's about the size of Hampshire. So it's about 4,600 square kilometres um, so it's a huge area of land that was abandoned a few days after the accident. So the people were evacuated. And w- originally we were looking at what, what had happened to the radioactivity in the exclusion zone. So what was it transporting out in rivers? How was it getting into the food chain? But in the yeah. last sort of 10, 15 years, we've been looking at whether the radioactivities had any effect on wildlife there and what happened to the wildlife when the people moved out.
0: You said that you'd actually spent time in the exclusion zone. Has that been a kind of big part of your research, travelling out there and spending time in that bit of the world?
1: Yeah. On and off, I've probably been sort of 40 or 50 times. We tend to go in sort of spring and autumn for a week or two weeks, firstly looking at where the radioactivity is and was after the accident, and secondly looking at some of the effects Effects on organisms living in that zone when people moved out, that the organisms stayed, the the plants, the animals stayed. What what's happened to them?
0: And I suppose if it's not too too broad a question, kind of what specifically are you seeing as far as the the wildlife goes in the exclusion zone?
1: Well, it, it's been interesting following this over the years. I, I work with a lot of scientists in in Belarus. Chernobyl is actually almost exactly on the border between Ukraine. It's it's in Ukraine, but it's almost exactly on the border between Ukraine and Belarus. So about half of the exclusion zones in Ukraine and half is in Belarus. And I've been working with both Belarusian and Ukrainian scientists over the years. And they've obviously, you know, in the first few weeks after the accident, people were were worried about other things than the wildlife. But actually the Belarusian and Ukrainian researchers have been studying wildlife since about 1987. So in the early years after the accident, Belarusian researchers, did helicopter surveys of large mammals in the exclusion zone. So they looked at um, elk, wild boar and roe deer populations. And what they found was quite surprising was that from about, so a year after the accident in 1987, from then on, the populations of large mammals started to increase quite rapidly.
2: And they didn't
1: specifically look at wolves because you can't really do surveys of wolves from a helicopter, but we believe that the wolf population, as a predator, started to expand rapidly as well.
2: Wow. Is that kind of contrary to what people expected to happen?
1: Well, I would say it's, it's contrary to what most people expected to happen. But if you looked at <laughs> this, this isn't the first time scientists have thought about this. You know, In the 1960s and 1970s, the Cold War, there were lots of nuclear weapons tests going on, and scientists were studying these things to sort of understand what would happen in the consequences of a big nuclear accident or an, or a nuclear bomb going off, what would happen to, to organisms. In a few places, including Russia and Canada, they put big, I mean really big, you'd, ne- you'd never get away with it now, but they put really <laughs> big radiation sources in the middle of forests to see what would happen. Oh, wow, so yeah. they, would, <laughs> they would put a source, it would be obviously lead shielded and everything, they would all get to a safe distance and and uncover it. And, and they would look at the effects on the plants and animals. And Gosh, wow. the, the and that's Canadian how got God study killer. on that, I mean, it's kind of old school science, big science, but it, it taught people quite a lot about what happens to organisms. Of course, they, these sources were big enough that in the immediate vicinity, the trees and animals would die. But right. as you got further away, they could look at different effects. And so people knew quite a lot before chernobyl about effects of radiation on wildlife and they'd also obviously been doing studies in the laboratory you know what does it take to affect reproduction of animals what does it take to kill animals and you know this science is still going on because now we have better genetic techniques to try and understand this but in general if you look at that research from before chernobyl then what happened wasn't particularly surprising because what we've got to remember is that Even though in the immediate aftermath of the accident, so in the first days, particularly in the hot spots in the exclusion zone, the radiation doses were really, really high, enough to kill animals and and plants in some areas. But over those first few weeks and months, 99% of the radioactivity disappeared from the environment. So between the day of the accident and about six months later, the amount of radioactivity in the environment went down by a factor of about 100 And that's because most of the radionuclides that were emitted, so a nuclear reactor has all these different fission products, and most of them are short-lived, so they Mm. decay quickly by nuclear physical decay. And what we're left with now, and and indeed from about 1987 onwards, it's continued to go down more slowly, but what we're left with is kind of residual, longer-lived radionuclides like cesium-137 and strontium-90 and some of the plutonium isotopes. So if we consider that, then when we look at the doses in that period after after 1987, then we kind of would say, well, it's not particularly surprising that the animals did quite well, especially given that people had moved out.
2: The radio radionuclides that are still around now, even though it's gone down, they're still got such presence that we can't have people returning is that is that well that
1: that, that's an interesting question because it's not uniformly contaminated the exclusion zone so there are there are hot spots and and what i would call the real hot spots are probably no more than two three percent of the whole surface area of this huge area but they are still quite significantly contaminated now the rest of the area still has these lower levels of of radioactivity and and you, you might have heard of the babushkas the grandmothers of Chernobyl. <laughs> and it's generally women, because women in that part of the world tend to live quite a lot longer than men. Mm. They're living in the villages in some of the, not the most contaminated spots, but in some of the some of the villages in the exclusion zone. And if you would look at the risk to their, their life, it's above the standards. So it's above at the approximately one in 10,000 risk that we set as a limit of what's safe for humans to occupy. But it's not a big risk in their lives especially that they're given that they're older so so you you could say that a large proportion of the exclusion zone would be habitable by humans but it's above that very cautious risk level that we set
0: so i was going to say do you find yourself personally working out there do you find that a stressful experience to be traveling to the exclusion zone
1: no not not anymore i mean now, I first went in 1994 and I remember being quite worried about it then <laughs> yeah. because then I was a, I'm a physicist and I'd studied lots about where radioactivity went in the environment, but I hadn't really studied what the risk of it was. And so I was kind of only reassured because a, a colleague told me, oh, it's all right. <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, I, I was quite well, that worried. It's
2: fine then, yeah. <laughs> but,
1: but now, but now you know, I know about. I've learned about radiation risk and what the doses are and what happens at those doses, and, and I know that it's it's not a problem. That doesn't mean to say that when you you know if you go to some of these hot spots and you switch your Geiger counter on and it starts clicking really rapidly, I still get that kind of illogical, <laughs> irrational feeling that. Oh, shouldn't stay here too long
0: well that was used to great effect in the tv show wasn't it i can it, think of it, those yeah. tent it scenes was. where the geiger is mounting up it doesn't sound like that, a good noise
1: that's right that's right you know i mean you can go into the details on that about you know what it takes to get a geiger ca- you know if you've got a sensitive <laughs> enough geiger counter you can get anything to click quite rapidly oh, right but, okay um, <laughs> but it's all about it's all about that risk threshold and and you know radiation is not something that even even after 30 years radiation is something that's not totally logical for me and I'm sure it isn't for other people
0: what is it that makes a a zone in the exclusion zone prone to being a hotspot then why, why why do hotspots exist why isn't it just uniformly like nearer to the explosion site it's more radioactive
1: well it's just where the wind was blowing at the time when the explosion and subsequent fire happened so that so okay. the, there was the initial very dramatic explosion. And then the the fire continued to burn for 10 days. So during that fire, there were ups and downs in what was emitted and the wind was changing direction. So there were kind of two main, they call them traces in in Ukrainian and Russian. So there was the Western trace, which um, went about sort of 10 kilometers is the main red forest that damaged Area with very high doses. Um, So that went to sort of eight to 10 kilometers away from the plant in a quite a defined one kilometer wide trace, they call it. So that was one. And then there was another one that went to the northeast, um, which caused contamination about five, six kilometers away to the northeast. So that we get these patches. And then you get other patches, for example, in Belarus, about 150 kilometers away it happened to rain where they, when the cloud was passing of radioactive gases and particles, and the rain tends to wash out the radioactivity onto the ground. And so there's another patch up there that's that's not as contaminated, but it's still considered as one of the more contaminated areas.
0: And is there anything you can do with areas like that, like to try and clean them up, uh, to put it really simply?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, the Soviets did try and do that um, with sort of mixed success. I mean, it's a big area, we're thinking an area the size of an English county, to try and clean up. And in the end, they did some decontamination in, in villages in the zone, they tried to resurface roads and so on. And around the, the nuclear power station itself, they've resurfaced roads, they've resurfaced areas, they've taken topsoil away and replaced it. And, and there, you, the contamination's pretty low now. But to do that for a whole large area of land is very difficult the Japanese are trying it in in some areas but it's a it's a big challenge.
2: Does that have sort of specific effects on on the wildlife there Uh, or or does it affect different species in different ways obviously the the big mammals are you know one thing and I guess they're easier to sort of to track from relative safety but does it have impact on on other species as well?
1: It's an interesting question I mean we, we know that radiation causes DNA damage at whatever level. So that's that's the current assumption that radiation protection scientists make, that whatever dose of radiation can potentially cause damage to DNA. So we can't say there's a totally risk-free dose of radiation, but we know that the greater the dose, the greater the risk, like with many carcinogens and, and many chemicals. And so the question comes down to what's a, what's a safe dose and what's a dose that, that will do significant damage. So we know that if we have elevated radiation, like we do in many parts of the world from natural radiation, like we get when we go to hospital for for an X-ray or a CT scan. So we know that that's doing DNA damage. The question is, what kind of damage is it doing? So we've looked at the cooling pond, which is the reservoir that held all the cooling water for the reactors at Chernobyl. And, mm. and mm-hmm. that's quite contaminated because it had the fallout from the air and it had um, waste water from the fire and from the accident going directly into it so that's contaminated and then there's a couple of other lakes that are are very contaminated so we've looked at at fish in those lakes and aquatic invertebrates so insects that are living there and we haven't seen very much so so the insects seem to be doing fine we've looked at a genetic level and we can't see anything there's some evidence that there's some there's some impact on reproduction of fish in in the cooling pond but again, we we think it's quite subtle. So it, it means that even though it's, the radiation is probably having a subtle effect on them, it's not affecting the populations.
0: I'm getting the feeling that the net, the net kind of effect on the wildlife, although, as you say, there's this low level risk that they're kind of experiencing, the beneficial effects of having no people around, <laughs> presumably that, outweigh it quite massively.
1: That's what we believe. And this is what, you know, as early on as 1987, when the when the animals started coming back, you could see that. So we're not saying that there aren't any effects of radiation in those hotspots, but the the benefit to the ecosystem of the people moving out and stopping doing the things that they do, hunting, fishing, agriculture, forestry, all those things, just being in an environment affects the wildlife habitats. And so the beneficial effect of removing the people we think massively outweighs... Any subtle effects of radiation in, in those hot spots.
0: Here lies the link, if it can even really be called a link, to the, the kind of current <laughs> situation we're in. I totally appreciate that a, a nuclear disaster is not really the same as a pandemic, but we are obviously seeing human activity slowing down. And I mean, just yeah, anecdotally the Yeah, the anthropos, precisely. Even anecdotally, I feel like so many friends and and myself have noticed, like just being more aware of birdsong, feeling like wildlife is like a little more confident in in your kind of local area. Is this kind of presumably a hot topic for research right now? The amount of different situations we must have seen this kind of rewilding starting to occur.
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting. I mean, I, I think that, like you, I've, I've been sent videos of animals in cities that you wouldn't expect to be in cities like wolves and wild boar and so on. It's interesting. It's also interesting. To me, it's interesting in that what it takes to get us to change our behaviour. Yeah, you know, at yeah. Chernobyl, <laughs> it took the world's worst nuclear accident. In the current situation, we've got the, the terrible virus. It's really interesting to study these things, but it also makes us think, well, how hard is it to change our behaviour? It is hard, and I'm 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 a bit pessimistic. I'm afraid is that I think that mm. people will sort of go back to doing what we were doing, you know, as we saw on the beaches mm. of the UK when we when we got a bit of decent weather, <laughs> yeah. they to get back yeah. to their lives. And, but I think the trick is to try and learn from these terrible events to try and maybe manage better our coexistence with wildlife. Or, or think again about some really difficult questions, like: Is it better to intensify? human impact in some areas in order to leave other areas free for wildlife? I mean, it's clear that in, in, like in the UK, it's, it, we have to coexist because we don't have any real wilderness areas left. Mm. But is it better to try and have intensive agriculture in more population-dense areas in some parts of the world and allow other parts of the world for there to be more wildlife habitat that's, that's undisturbed by us? Or is yeah. it better to try and coexist everywhere? These are really hard questions. Mm-hmm. and Maybe we, we can learn from, from the anthropos from that. Wow. I
0: think in the very first episode of this um, current series, we kind of talked on that topic with uh, a behavioural scientist, Nick Chater, who I suppose he maybe took a more a more optimistic angle on it, but we did still kind of agree yeah. that the big difference between... Uh, we, we used the example of climate change and how we all know there is... Probably the biggest calamity approaching, yeah. but because of the distant consequences, and that's an in inverted commas, they're not distant, yeah, yeah. but they are in terms of like you're not going to catch it as you go out the house and then be bed bound. It's like Psych-
2: psychologically yeah. distant for people yeah, in their day to day lives. Right.
0: And That's you're right, right, getting people to change in those contexts is incredibly difficult, whereas, yeah, you know, the yeah. threat of nuclear fallout mm. or a, a disease is a lot more of a motivator in the immediate sense.
1: i I'm just trying to be a bit more op- optimistic, maybe. I mean, what it does show is how resilient nature is, you know. I think
2: most people would find that quite amazing, the idea that only, only, you know, a, a year or more after the disaster at Chernobyl yeah. that was already wildlife returning. I think most people would find that amazing.
1: That's yeah. right, that's right. Yeah. And that, and now there the are rare you know, white tailed eagle eagle, black stork, the, the, the wolves are there in abundance. Um, there's even been a brown bear spotted at Chernobyl. There are lynx wow. traipsing around in the in the abandoned city of Pripyat, which is right next to the power station. So so that's that's the other side of the coin is that nature is 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 very resilient.
0: Have you seen a lot of this wildlife directly yourself when you've been out there
1: yeah I mean you don't see too much um, we've seen quite a few of the big birds and we see Prejavalsky horse which was introduced to the exclusion zone that's the only remaining wild wild horse in in the world
0: was that to try and prevent wildfires I think I read about this when I was researching for this episode
1: yeah well there's I mean they they do graze and keep the the shrub and trees down. Although this year there have been very significant wildfires, so that's that's a, probably the main issue for the, both the wildlife and the safety risk in the zone is wildfires. You know your
2: your experience in Chernobyl, and considering that we have to move to the, you know carbon neutral pretty darn quick, has it changed your opinion on nuclear power at all?
1: Yes, it has. I mean, actually, when I started studying this thirty years ago, I was anti nuclear, and it might seem surprising, but <laughs> Thirty years of of studying Chernobyl has helped me understand more about it, and now I'm I'm cautiously pro nuclear. Wow, okay, partly because I, it's not as bad as I thought it was when I started studying this, and partly because obviously the climate change has become much more more imminent and urgent now. And I think that I'm, I'm pro renewables. You know, I, I believe in wind farms and and solar and whatever non carbon energy we can get. But I, I think that we need everything we can get. I don't think we can do without nuclear. Uh, and I think that so long as it's managed properly and, and done safely, then I think we, we don't have any risk-free options going forward. Even, even solar panels and, and wind farms have environmental impact. So I think we just have to balance the risk and I think we have to accept that nuclear should be part of our armoury for, for combating climate change.
0: Obviously, as you say, you've been studying this since, I mean, kind of almost serendipitously at, at around the time in your academic career you were looking to start your PhD, That that's around the time this took yeah. place. So I suppose it's kind of shaped your entire career in a sense, yeah. but are there still new consequences emerging now? I know you said the research focus had changed from the fallout of the radiation to the wildlife, but are there new consequences emerging for the communities that live you know, close to Chernobyl to this day?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's really interesting. What might sound surprising, but it's, for a, a long time, it's been known that the main consequence of Chernobyl was not the direct health impact of the radiation, although they were significant in some cases, but the social and economic impact of the accident. So, aside from using a very significant proportion of the budget of Ukraine and Belarus to mitigate the consequences, rehouse people, relocate people, it's had big psychological and social impacts. So, so people in the affected areas believed that their health was worse than it was because of a fear of radiation. So whatever illness people got in those areas tended to be attributed to radiation when the science says that there's a very, very big probability that it wasn't, that the the radiation risk to most of the population was very, very low, although a lot of people got a radiation dose. That dose was within the range of natural radiation doses that we all get from rocks and from cosmic rays and so on. Mm. But the impact, both economic of the evacuation, the rehousing, the loss of employment. So we're working in an in an area called Narodici, um, which is in what we call Zone Two. So it's not in the main exclusion zone. It's called the Zone of Obligatory Resettlement. So in theory, people were supposed to be moved out, but not everybody did. In Narodici, before the accident, it had a population of thirty thousand. Now it has ten thousand, and there's still a school. There's a council. Everything's working, except that there's no official use of the land allowed because it's deemed contaminated, and there's no investment allowed. And so unemployment in Narodichi is about 50%. So all these impacts of the accident have been really serious. And and what we're trying to do is to work with our Ukrainian colleagues to develop a method to say, well, this land can be used again, or it can't. And we believe that there's a very significant area of land that's currently abandoned outside the main exclusion zone, that could be used again and start to bring back jobs and and better economic conditions in those areas. And I believe that now, and indeed even a few years after the accident, the main issues in those areas were not the direct effects of radiation, but the effects on on people's life prospects and their diet from low incomes and unemployment.
0: So from a perspective of wanting to kind of show that this land is potentially safe to use again is that where the atomic vodka project was kind of born from
1: kind of yeah we were we were interested in looking at how how the radiation went through the environment so how much so many years on how much was transferring from soils into plants but we also had this idea to see what happens when you distill the, the to ferment the grain and distill it and produce produce a vodka and it's not rocket science really we know that when you distill something apart from the alcohol. You leave more or less everything else in the waste products. So this is what we found. So we found that the grain that we used, we grew the grain in the main exclusion zone, the grain that we used was slightly contaminated. So it was above the Ukrainian limit for consumption. But once we distilled it, the distillate that went through into the vodka, we couldn't find any signs of radioactivity. Wow
0: and whose idea was this project then was this something that your your research group specifically decided to work on or were you approached by
1: yeah no no, that was by a vodka company (laughs) okay so
0: they that's so interesting that they chose to work with you on that no 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 i'm
1: I'm joking no it was it was our idea it was our idea yeah.
0: Sam, edit that out to make me sound less gullible.
1: Yeah.
2: <laughs> that does sound like the idea of some... No. Nope. <laughs> <Yeah>, so,
1: <laughs> so you know, no, that was our idea. And it's something that I've been dreaming of for quite a long time. But we just, like, in the last few years, we just got the chance to do it. And um, and we've done it. So we've now got a website. What we're, what we're currently struggling with is Ukrainian regulation, not so much on, on contaminated products, but on, on production of, of strong alcohol. So in Ukraine, currently, all strong alcohol has to be produced by the state. But we're hoping that that's going to change. There's a few craft distilleries springing up in Ukraine, and we want to work with one of those to start producing this commercially. And, and we've set up a social enterprise to try and hopefully produce some vodka and sell it and 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 put the profits towards helping the, the people that have been affected by the accident such a great like, idea it's
0: yeah uh, it really is we really wanted to obviously bring that up being as it's pint of science podcast after yeah. all it seems like this is pretty much as scientific as an alcoholic drink can get yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. that's very true I could, is there yeah. other, are, are there any other sort of you know social enterprises going on like that in the in the zone
1: no, I mean, we've, we've speculated about other things, but not yet. I mean, there is activity going on. So within the what we call the 10-kilometre zone, the near zone of, of the plant, that's been designated as a kind of technological zone. And so there's waste disposal activities going on, both from the, the plant, and there's a plan to make it a, waste, a nuclear waste disposal site for Ukraine because it kind of makes sense. There's no people around living around there the environment's already been contaminated so it kind of makes sense to, to put a, a waste disposal site there so that's what they're planning at the moment there's also a small solar farm in there that's producing a, a very small amount of power but it's a, it's a step forward
0: obviously since the television show which i will talk to you a little bit about in a moment the tourism industry kind of around chernobyl and the exclusion zone that's something that i mean just as a a bystander. I've spotted more news stories about it since the television show. Do you think that that tourism would be a good thing for local communities in terms of boosting the economy?
1: It's quite a difficult issue, the the tourism. Some of it isn't, I would say, isn't in the best taste. Some of it feels a bit like kind of disaster tourism. And you see minibuses taking tourists and they've got skull and crossbones on the outside and and radiation signs and things. Um, But having said that, there are there are different tour companies and, and some are better than others. And, and some, some of the guides are very good and they give people accurate information. Some of them we're not sure are, are so good. But in general, I think if people are going there and they're learning and they're learning the re, what it's really like in the exclusion zone, then I, I think it's probably a good thing.
0: I do, I think just to sort of wrap up on the Atomic Vodka Project, I think that's a really nice thing about what you've got going on there in that none of the marketing around that or the well, the press you've done has been at all like you know, you could have, as you say, gone for the kind of insensitive, garish, making yeah. a big thing of the radioactivity, whereas the angle has been much more, look, this can be a safe product. Do you know what I mean? This doesn't have That's to right. be viewed as a, a dangerous thing.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I think, I mean, you, when when you first think about it, and many people have suggested this to us, that you sort of make put something in it that makes it glow in the dark and <laughs> you put a big... <laughs> nuclear trefoil symbol on it and that's <laughs> everybody's first thought but it's not what we want to do what's important to us is that we get the science message across
0: yes um,
1: as yeah. well as hopefully trying to do so if we ever get any made which is our our big job of working on at the moment is is to produce something that that will that will help with the economic situation there.
2: That's really interesting. I think with the link to the Chernobyl series as well, because obviously, I mean, I watched it and it was brilliant, with the move towards nuclear power. Do you think there is some sort of work to be done on, on reducing the sort of negative portrayal of nuclear power in general?
1: This is, is this something that's really hard, and it's, it's been talked about for decades. It's, it's not like we've, we've suddenly sort of come to a realisation that, that we have to explain this science better to people it, it, it was an issue after chernobyl it was an issue after fukushima accident in 2011 and we just have to keep working on that it's not an easy message to get across because it's it's complicated you know nothing's completely safe we just have to try and get across to people what the real risks are so they can make considered judgments and, and When surveys are done of people's attitudes to risk and nuclear, it always comes up as a much bigger risk than the scientific community thinks it is. And that's understandable because it's got all these associations with Chernobyl, with nuclear weapons and so on. Uh, And and so it, it it is a hard communication issue to get across. But I think we just have to keep working on it. Yeah.
0: I remember listening to um a podcast about the, the television show after it came out. I think it was the writer and director possibly, um, Craig Mazin was talking about how he was really scared that the show would inadvertently give a really anti-nuclear kind of a resurgence yeah. of anti nuclear sentiment because obviously it is terrifying and it is a it was a yeah. huge monumental disaster. But yeah, he, yeah. he was really yeah. keen to stress that the the program in and of itself wasn't intended to kind of stoke the fires of anti-nuclear it was supposed to be a a study of the the human tragedy I mean what were your what were your thoughts on the television program?
1: Well well, I thought I was gripped by it the first episode in particular where they I mean the level of detail that they've gone into is is quite amazing you know I've read quite a lot about that night of the accident and it seemed to me that it really captured slightly dramatized but it really captured what what happened on that that night, it was quite amazing, quite emotional for me to watch. But there were some things in the series that that weren't right, and in particular, the sort of claim that it could all have blown up like a nuclear bomb could have blown up. <laughs> that was a, a bit of a narrative at the time, and that was a concern at the time. But it, the science just doesn't back that up. Nuclear power stations, you know, I've talked to nuclear physicists about this. Nuclear power stations just can't blow up like that. Okay. You know, if things had really gone wrong and the core had melted down and into the water pool at the bottom, that was the narrative of the drama. Yeah. It was argued in that drama that that would produce a thermonuclear explosion that would blow up half of Ukraine and Belarus. That just isn't scientifically justified. They did exaggerate some things.
0: I suppose they were, I I guess, for the television show, every episode had to have its kind of tension and drama. The
1: the problem with it was that it was so good that people tended to take it as a documentary. So it was so accurately portrayed that you tend to believe it and see it as a real reconstruction of, of what really happened historically, whereas... It was a drama and certain things were were dramatized.
0: Just as a sort of closing point, you actually started your scientific education, I guess, up in Edinburgh studying astrophysics, right? That's right. So that's quite a big change to my mind to go from your undergraduate degree to where you are now. How did that sort of happen? What inspired the the leap? Or is it a leap? Am I imagining it's a bigger leap than it is?
1: (laughs) Well, it was quite a big leap. I was all set to do a PhD in astrophysics, actually. And then I'd been an environmentalist when I was an undergraduate and part of the Green Group at Edinburgh University. And I wanted to, naively probably, I wanted to save the environment. And so I did a master's at Cranfield Institute of Technology on soil science and and water engineering because I wanted to move into the environmental field and maybe work in developing countries Um, but then sort of by luck I saw a PhD opportunity which kind of combined the two so it was about mathematical modelling of where radioactivity goes in the environment so it brought in the physics and it brought in the the soil science and, and water engineering so it was kind of a bit of luck like anything but it was a conscious decision to try and do something environmentally focused and I've kind of been happy with that decision.
0: Yeah. And it makes for a pretty interesting kind of career development, really, to, have, as we've discussed, it's kind of brought you from a position of maybe environmental kind of campaigning through to campaigning for nuclear power, but from a very scientific perspective, which is the the best grounds to to believe in something.
1: Yeah, I, I, I think so. Well, I mean, Brilliant. thank
0: you so much for giving up your time on a on a weekday evening like this. It's been really, really fascinating to catch up. I think I saw a, when I was doing research for this episode. Did I see a photo of you? Have you been inside the control room of uh, of Chernobyl? I, it could have been you.
1: Yeah, in the one next door, so Unit Three, so Unit floor Four that exploded. Three. Uh, been inside.
2: Wasn't it running as a power station until 2001 or something yeah, scary like that? Yeah,
1: yeah, it was in, in the year 2000 it was closed. They, they did some, <laughs> extra they some extra safety systems <laughs> as you might imagine but it did run until 2000. I knew it's one and two ran in, until I think mid-1990s. Wow, It's a very emotional experience to go, go inside. Um, I'd like to go into the control room of Unit 4 and I believe I've heard that it's open for tourists now right But you've got a book well ahead okay
2: during the lockdown as well
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> wow that was that was amazingly cool i mean I, I can't imagine how atmospheric it must actually be to be in the exclusion zone you know it's just something about that
0: nature reclaiming an urban environment that i really like i mean as a bit yeah. of a nerd, it's been the the backdrop for many a science fiction film slash video game. It makes for a great atmosphere yep. to see what human creation looks like when there's it's basically been taken back by nature, which is yeah.
2: But it does make me question the, the realism of many of those films and video games, considering <laughs> what we've heard today, that actually, you know, okay. being, being in the exclusion zone is not, it's not that dangerous, really. Yeah, it's
0: basically would be just like an episode of Springwatch.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much. You know, even, even The Simpsons and The, the Three-Eyed Fish is uh, somewhat a, uh, an exaggeration.
0: Yes, but Jim, thoroughly interesting chap all around and shared some great insights as well um, on the kind of lockdown situation and the implications for how people can learn from this experience. I thought he described himself as a pessimist, but I thought his overall message was actually quite an optimistic one yeah
2: thank you very much for for listening to today we hope you've enjoyed this uh, this very fascinating talk with uh with jim we'll be back in your ears very shortly with a new episode we might be talking about covid but we might have moved on to a new theme but uh keep your eyes peeled on uh, on social media and all your favorite podcast apps and we will talk to you very soon
0: ciao